I'm sure we have all come across uh, the statement sola scripturia. Sola scripturia, the scripture alone, was one of the great truths that were rediscovered at the Protestant Reformation. In that day, Luther's day and time, it meant, of course, that the scriptures were the sole authority for believers in faith and in practice. The opposition to that and why it is uh, so important truth, why it was rediscovered, is because it stood in contrast to what was been taught in the Dark Ages, the traditions of the fathers, the councils of what they decreed, or the popes that sat upon uh, their their, uh, throne in the Vatican. And so uh, here was the contrast. It's none of those things. It is Scripture alone. And the Scriptures stand alone as the authority for the church. We stand by that still today. Men and women, the problem today in the church is not Scripture alone. But let me suggest to you, it is that we don't believe it's sufficiency. That's a different matter. Many question the Scripture's relevance for today. Many question its ability to draw unbelievers to Christ. Many question that it is enabling us to be able to grow. Many question that it is providing or does provide direction for life. Or even they will question the word of God and its relevancy to change society. And so many turn instead to religious experiences or special revelations. In other words, the battle today is against those who would have us use worldly methods to do God's work because we don't believe in the sufficiency of God's word. That's the problem. Oh, we believe the scriptures to be inerrant. They are without fault. They are truth in every part. We're not, uh, don't stand in the liberal camp tonight where they would say, well, some of it is truth and others uh, you can uh, set aside. It's not truth. We believe it is inerrant. It is without error. But what about its sufficiency? Is it relevant Has it got the ability to meet the needs for today? That's why in one part I've read Psalm 19. Because it is one of the passages that answers the question itself. Do we really believe that God has given us what we need in his word? Or do we subscribe to the idea that we've got to complement that word? We've got to add to it. Well, the scriptures provide the answer. Psalm 19 draws to our attention the great contrast between the revelations of God. In theological terms, there is the general revelation and then there's the special revelation. You see the general revelation in the first six verses of Psalm 19. What is it? It's about creation. 
It's about creation, the revelation of God in nature. And the heavens declare the glory of God, the firmament showeth his handiwork. And you make your way down of how he describes even nature there. And uh, he has set a tabernacle for the sun. It's like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. There's a circuit for the sun. But you see, men and women, that general revelation is limited. But when you come to verse 7, the contrast is between God's special revelation. And this is a revelation of Scripture. God's revelation in nature is wonderful, but it's limited. It can't save. The man in darkest Africa, or I maybe should say the man in darkest Scotland or England. They can see the handiwork of God if they look at creation, if their eyes are open to behold creation, that general revelation that God has given, but it can't convert them. But it does teach that there is a God. There is a superior being. But the revelation that God has given in the scriptures, you'll notice in verse 7, just follow them, uh, those verses right down, that the revelation given in the word of God is perfect. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. It's sure. The next verse, it's right. It's pure. It's clean. It's righteous. It's to, to be desired more than gold. It's much sweeter even than honey. Every verse down there. Reveals how different the special revelation in God's word is. How greater could we uh, even say, how could the, the psalmist in a greater measure emphasize the complete and utter sufficiency of God's word? It's able to convert the soul. It's able to make wise the simple. It's able to rejoice the heart. It's pure. It causes uh, the eyes to be opened, to be enlightened. The fear of the Lord is what we uh, come across in the word of God. The judgments of God are there. They're true. They're righteous. It is to be desired. Just like Job could say that he desired the word of God more than his necessary food. So there in Psalm 19 is one answer. One passage that answers the question, are the scriptures sufficient? But if you come over to Matthew chapter 4, then we have another passage. And we might say in Matthew chapter 4 that here we see it put into practice, the sufficiency of God's word. For it is the passage that brings us to consider that time when the Savior was led of the Spirit out into the wilderness. And he was tempted of the devil. And having fasted uh, 40 days and 40 nights, he was afterward in hunger. There is a little indication of his humanity. And he's at that weak point when the devil comes along. The devil won't come to you at your strongest point. He comes to you at your weakest point. And he came to the Savior in his humanity when he was in hunger. And he comes with his temptations as we have them. If thou be the Son of God, verse 3, command, these stones be made bread. But he answered and said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. 
but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Look at verse 7. There's the second answer. Jesus said unto them, It is written again, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Look at verse 10. Then said Jesus unto him, Here's the third time. Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Every time, you know, of course, the Savior is found to be quoting their scriptures. He's taking scriptures from the Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 8. Verse 3, Deuteronomy chapter 6, for the other two occasions. He's quoting scripture. But just stop and think of that. When the devil comes to the Lord, and when he seeks to tempt the Lord, to cast himself down from the top of the temple, or to give him all of the kingdoms of the world, he didn't reason with Satan. He could have reasoned with Satan. Christ had reasoning powers. He, at the age of 12, is found sitting among the professors and the teachers at the temple, hearing and asking them questions, and they marveled. He's found oftentimes to be speaking and to reasoning with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Those were the doctors of the law those days. So he could have reasoned, but he doesn't reason with the devil. He doesn't even resort to supernatural powers, and he could have done so. He's the saviour that calmed the storm. He's the saviour that walked on the water. He could have exercised his power at this juncture, but he doesn't. He didn't even ask for some special sign or intervention. No, none of those things is how the Lord answered the temptations of the devil. The saviour simply, simply used the scriptures. They're sufficient, you see. And we read, of course, in verse 11, then the devil leaveth him. He had no answer for the word of God. Three temptations, and he's no answer. He has to leave the Lord. And the angels came and ministered unto Christ. There is the sufficiency of the scriptures in practice. Let me turn you to Another passage where you see it again, Second Timothy chapter three, this time further on in the New Testament. Paul's writing as an old apostle now to his young protege, young son of the faith, I believe Timothy was saved under the ministry of the apostle Paul. He leaves him to be the pastor in Ephesus. And he's writing unto him to his two letters. And you'll notice the start of chapter 3 of the second epistle. He says, This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. In the last days, Timothy, here's what it's going to be like. Days hard to bear. He warns young Timothy of the terrible times ahead. The last days, men and women, are between the first coming of Christ and the second coming. That's what is termed as the last days. People often say today we're in the last of the last days. We'll not argue against that. We're in the last days. But understand something. This passage then applies to today. Just as much as it applies to Timothy's day. And he goes on to say, For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, 
blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without a natural affection, truth-breakers, false accusers, continent, fears, despisers of those that are good, taters, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures, more than lovers of God. There's a summary of their moral conduct. There's an accurate description, men and women, of the world in which we live in tonight. An accurate description. And these are the days prior to the Lord's return. But having described the vices, he then gives a little phrase. Verse 5, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. Is he speaking about the church there? Having a form of godliness. The problem being the church will be like the world and will be corrupt. Having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof. And and Paul is absolutely certain what he should do from such turn away. That's not what we are to be like. What was Timothy to do? Paul here doesn't show him some new weapon. Paul doesn't show him something new. Something new that he could use against such days that he would be ministering in. It's just what Timothy had all along. The word of God. Because you see men and women the word of God is sufficient for all times. For all situations, especially the terrible days of sin that you and I are living in. We're in the days of lovers of their own selves. We're in days of disobedient parents, unholy, etc. and etc. And so we should go on. Timothy, continue in the scriptures. Look at verse 14. But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them, and that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Timothy, in those days, and you see those things happening, just continue of what you have. Continue in the word of God. Verse 16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and simply, literally all God breathed. That's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. You see, the word is enough for our creed. That the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. The word of God is sufficient for our conduct. Timothy, just continue in it. Continue in the word that you've been taught. How sufficient is the word of God? It is sufficient for our growth in grace. That's how we grow. That's why I yearn that more will be found in the prayer meeting. It's where you'll grow, young person. It's where you'll grow, men and women. Because we come specifically around the word for a time before we come to prayer. And there's application 
in the prayer meeting, particularly for the child of God. That's not always the case in the meetings on the Lord's Day because we're uh, conscious that they're unsaved in the meetings as well. But the Word of God is sufficient for your growth and for mine. The Word of God is sufficient for society today and how it needs to be changed. It is sufficient. But I want you to consider and it's really thinking of the mission that's just just a few days away now from commencing. The word of God is sufficient for evangelism in this day and generation. I'll go further. It's the only thing that's sufficient. It's the only thing that's effective. If we depend upon music, if we depend upon emotional appeals, if we depend upon testimony apart from the faithful preaching of God's word, the result will always be spurious conversions. And I'm not going against singing. There'll be singing. There'll be testimony. Uh, there, There will be even appeal, no doubt, brought to the people. But men and women, it is only dependent upon the preaching of the word of God that we go to that side down the road. Depending on what God has decreed. Depending on the Spirit to take that word and to apply it to the hearts of men and women. And to all that will hear it. The only way in which God the Holy Spirit works to regenerate men and women is by the word. It's by the word. You read with me First Peter 1. I think it's a lesson we need to remind ourselves of time and time again. The Spirit doesn't work apart from the Word. It's only through and by the Word. First Peter 1 and 23, Peter can say, being born again. Now what do we want? That's what we pray for. That souls would know what it is to be born again. Not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible. Do you understand what it is? By the Word of God which liveth and abideth forever. It's by the word. And we go, as we do at any Lord's Day or any Thursday night for that matter, any time that we open up the book, we go with the promise of Isaiah 55 and verse 11, where through the prophet God says, So shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. Maybe I should back up a little. I should read verse 10, because people are talking about the rain. That's the subject on people's lips at the minute, the weather. Is it ever going to perk up again? Is the summer gone? For as the rain cometh down, most natural thing we can see in these days, it comes down and snow from heaven and returneth not to there, but watereth the earth and maketh it bring forth and, and bud that it may give seed to the sower, bread to the eater. So shall my word, just as the rain comes down, just as the rain has a purpose for the watering of the crops, etc., to feed the, the, the eater, so shall my word that goeth forth out of my mouth, it shall not return unto me void. But it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereto I sent it. We must go with a promise. Lord, it's thy word. It will not return unto thee void. 
what has been the case in the lives of many evangelists. And some of them will be household names. I'll give you one straight away. Charles Finney. You read anything about Charles Finney, stay clear. Because Charles Finney depended on methods. Method. The Savior is the one whose example we desire to follow. He used the word. The word. Will you turn over to Mark and I'll show it to you. Mark's Gospel chapter 1. I want you to just see how Mark introduces Christ. The opening verses are taken up with his forerunner, of course, John the Baptist. You know, it comes the time where John the Baptist was put in prison, verse 14. And then we have the introduction by Mark of the Savior. Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent ye and believe the gospel. How does Mark introduce Christ? He introduces him as the preacher. He preaches the gospel. The word gospel there, believe the gospel, verse 15, it's simply the good news. We're going down to the old Hotel site to bring good news. Good news to men and women who are yet in their sin. To preach the gospel. We desire to do that every Sabbath day from this pulpit. Preaching good news. And that's how Mark introduces the Lord. What's the gospel about? It's the kingdom of God. How do men and women become part of that kingdom? Well, it's by repenting and believing the gospel. That's what Christ preached. But having given that introduction in Mark chapter 1 verse 15, the Lord or, or the, the evangelist Mark goes on to speak of what followed that. And what followed in those words is times where the power of God was manifested. And you'll notice how he is noted, for example, of his teaching and preaching that amazed the people. Look at the words of verse 22. And they were astonished. He goes into the synagogue in Capernaum on the Sabbath, verse 21. And they were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as one that had authority and not as the scribes. Oh, men and women, please pray that I would have authority. I don't want to be like a wet lettuce or like a, some of these other craters in, in pulpits and they, they don't really believe what they preach. Pray that Mr. Henderson and me would have authority, have power. The Lord had authority as he taught and the people were astonished. Look at the words of verse 27. And they were all amazed in so much that they questioned among themselves saying, What thing is this? What new doctrine is this? For with authority commandeth he even the unclean spirits, and they do obey him. Mark's still talking about his preaching and his teaching of the people. And he did that he did so with authority. But that's not where we end. Because if you read on, what do you come across next? 
you come across the healing of Peter's mother-in-law. He's supposed to be the first pope while he was married. For a start, you don't get a mother-in-law unless you have a wife, unless you're married. Have a good mother-in-law. Better say that. Uh, but she is good to me uh, when I see her, about twice a year. Um, and Peter had a mother-in-law. And the mother-in-law was sick with fever. And I want you to understand, we can, we can read over that very, very quickly. You get a fever these days. Well, you might hit the bed for a day or two and then you'll be up and about. Fever in those days was the biggest killer. It was a serious, serious ailment. Many, many, many people died of a fever. And that's the scenario, that's the situation that the Lord found. But of course, the healing power of Christ is known, it's recorded in those verses. And Peter's mother-in-law was restored. What happened? The word soon got out. Do you know what happened to Peter's mother-in-law? Do you know what the Savior did? And what happened? They all brought the sick. And they brought the sick to even the Savior. Look at the words of verse 32 and even. This is after the mother-in-law is healed. And even when the sun did set, they brought unto him all that were diseased, and them that were possessed with devils. And all the city was gathered together at the door, and he healed many that were sick of divers diseases, and cast out many devils, and suffered not the devils to speak, because they knew him. The word got out. Here is one who has power to heal. And so they brought the sick to him and those that were possessed. And the Lord's power was able to make them well. And he was one who cared for the people. And the next day the people came back for more. But the Lord's nowhere to be found. And the disciples, they find him on the mountain in prayer. And they relay the message of what's going on down below. Verse 37. And when they had found him, they said unto him, All men seek for thee. They no doubt to gather up others. Got to get them, get these people to the Lord. Get them healed. Peter, his name is mentioned there. Simon, verse 36. The others are there. They may have suggested this was a glorious opportunity for him. They may have implied by saying to him, Lord, all men seek for thee. There's a great opportunity here to see great success in evangelism. People like this sort of thing. Did they, did they say to him, Lord, you better come down at once. You better come down to these people. Do you see his answer? He said unto them, verse 38, Let us go into the next times that I may preach there also. For therefore came I forth. His purpose and coming Because the word of God is sufficient. He could have healed many people physically, but they still would have went to hell spiritually. And so he said, let us go to other towns. 
He left that crowd behind who were just seeking to be healed physically to preach the word to souls who were in need. Men and women, miracles convert no one. Signs and wonders don't convert anybody. The Saviour wouldn't allow anything to deter him from doing the will of his Father. If people think that miracles can convert the soul, or signs and wonders for that matter, then you've just got to turn them to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16 will again be familiar to you. It's a passage of the rich man and Lazarus. Both died. Lazarus went to paradise. Bosom of Abram. Rich man went to hell. I want you to remember what the Saviour teaches here. I don't believe it's a parable. I believe it's real life. But even if you do concede that it is a parable. The Lord never taught a mistruth by any parable. He never taught error. He never deceived by any parable. If you do want to accept it as a parable, I think these are real men. You remember what the Saviour teaches here. Maybe we miss this. Verse 27 is describing the request of that rich man. He said, I pray thee therefore, Father, that I would send him, that is Lazarus, to my father's house. For I have five brethren that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. There's the request and there's the reason. Will you, will you send that one? Will you resurrect him again? Will you send him to my brother's house? Because of five brothers. And they're in danger of coming to this place of torment as well. But verse 29 and following is the reply. Abram saith unto them, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. What's he mean? That's the Old Testament scriptures. Pentateuch, first five books, the prophets. They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, Nay, Father Abram, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. He said unto them, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. Souls will not be converted even by a resurrection. That's the Lord's teaching there. Mind you, that would be some miracle, wouldn't it? If Lazarus suddenly was to appear on the earth again and go to the house of the brothers. He says, nay. If they will not hear Moses, if they will not hear the word of God, they'll not be saved, they'll not be converted, they'll not be turned from hell by seeing one that has rose again. Men and women, God has given his word. It is nigh unto us. We read that in Romans chapter 10. With this I close the words of verse 8. But what saith that the word is nigh unto thee. Even in thy mouth and in thy heart. That is the word of faith. 
which we preach. Again, Paul there, if you have a margin, he's quoting from Deuteronomy. The word of God is nigh unto us. It's nigh unto the people of Market Hill. In many respects, it's in their mouth. It's in their heart. Many have been taught from their Sunday school days, etc. Others have been witnessed to from the workmate and neighbor, etc. They are without excuse. And this is not, not the first gospel campaign coming around. It'll not be the last if God tarries. But men and women, we need to pray that God would apply his word, because that's what we're preaching, and that he would apply his word to the hearts of men and women, to all that hear it with power. And there will be signs following the preaching of that word to his glory. Yes, in the conversion of souls, we'd love to see it. In the restoration of the backslider, we'd love to see it. But also, that the word will be seen again in the lives of God's people. That's also signs following. And I believe that God's word is sufficient to meet those needs. Let's pray to that end. That God would take his word by his spirit. Preacher cannot cause an anxious thought. The spirit of God has to take the word. He did it in the day of Pentecost. Word was preached. They heard it. And they said, brethren, what must we do? Repent and believe the gospel. And you uh, do even a little study throughout the New Testament and other places, you will see how the Spirit always works in tandem with the word that was preached. Never apart from it, never divorced from it. Because he is the divine author of the word. He always works with the word. And that's how conversions come about. May the Lord